Good morning. I echo Josh's words that it's good to be together, and I really do appreciate us all being gathered together at 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Um, But you know, we don't get as many complaints as I thought we would about the early service time. Uh, It really is great. I mean, the first thing in the morning to get up and be in church, what could be better than that? Nothing. I mean, unless we were in glory, that would be pretty good. But uh, we'll take this, and I'm glad that you're here. Today is the first Sunday of June, which means that we are back to the Psalms. Uh, We go through the Psalms in the summer, um, and one of the reasons for this is that because we, we want to preach the book of Psalms, but it is so big that if we were to preach it as we do other books consecutively, it would be a very long time, which is not bad, of course, some people do that, but... We have decided to take the summer months of June, July, and August and preach through the book of Psalms. That way, we can get the experience of the whole book and also have the variety of other places in Scripture feeding us, teaching us, reminding us of the promises of God. So that's kind of the method behind the madness, if you will, if why every summer we go back to the Psalms. So last year was the first summer that we did this. And so today now we pick up in Psalm 12, and Lord willing, by the end of the summer, we'll be somewhere around 23, 24, somewhere in there. Now, before we get into Psalm 12 this morning, I want to give us a bit of overview of the book, just how it's put together, and also point out a couple of things that the Psalms give us by way of tools that we can use and things that we can encourage our hearts with I don't want us to think about the Psalms as just filler, you know, something a little bit lighter that we might approach in the summer. That is not the case. The Psalms are the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God that was given to us and to the people of Israel for our encouragement and for our growth, for our sanctification. So why should we deny ourselves that? We shouldn't. It's very good for us to take time and spend it in this book. So I want to give you a few things about the Psalms that might be helpful now as we engage in this book over the next months. The Psalms, as they appear in your Bible, are actually a collection of five books, five different books. And you can see this even as you go through, hopefully in your translation, it'll say book one, book two, book three, book four, book five, etc. So book one goes through chapter 41. And you can, like I said, if you open your Bible, you should be able to see this. Book 2 is chapters 42 to 72. Book 3 is a little shorter, 73 to 89. Book 4 is 90 to 106. And then book 5 takes 107 through the end of the book, 150. The first people to put the Psalms in this order, to arrange them together, to separate them into these five books, were Ezra and Nehemiah. So if you remember your Old Testament history a little bit, Ezra and Nehemiah, they rediscover the scrolls, the law of God, and get them back into the worship and the liturgy of the nation of Israel. And they structured the Psalms in this way. And so when you open your Bible here in 2022 and you see the structure of how they're laid out, it is the same structure that Ezra put into place. Isn't that cool? That God preserves not only his word, but the way that it's laid out. I thought that was really interesting. So books one and two have noticeable alignment with Samuel and the book of Chronicles. 
Okay, they, they align very closely with many situations and circumstances in the life of King David. In fact, many of the Psalms in these first two books are ascribed to David. So if you look in the book of Psalms, at the top of a lot of the Psalms, you'll see something called a superscription. And this might say something like, to the choir master, according to the Shimonent, the Psalm of David, or so that's what today's says. Those were not added later. Those are actually a part of the inspired text. And so those give us oftentimes a connection to something historical, something actual that was going on. That helps us to see the Psalms not as just disjointed little uh, out of nowhere kind of encouragement, but they're actually tied to the history of the nation of Israel. Books three and four then, there's only three Psalms ascribed to David. The rest are various writers. And what that tells us is that as we move through the book of Psalms and get into the middle now, books three and four, we're not so much dealing with the life of David, but the life of Solomon and Absalom and the kings that go down through the line of David. And then when we get to the fifth book, to the end of the Psalms, we have, among other things, the Psalms of Ascent which would be Israel coming back, going up. Ascent means up, going up to Jerusalem. And we see what they would sing and what they would recite as they came back from exile. These psalms also give us very clear pictures. Think of Psalm 110, Psalm 122. Psalms that give us these clear messianic pictures, of course, pointing forward to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I tell you this, these kind of connections, because... When we go through the Psalms, I don't want you to see these as disjointed, random texts. I want you to see these in connection to their historical context. We need to see them not just in the history of Israel, which is very important, but also we need to see them in the history of redemption. Where do these fit in in God's overarching plan? We need to know that. We need to see that or it's not going to make any sense. The Psalms are not just a collection of feel-good encouragements that go on coffee mugs or a picture of an eagle flying over a lake somewhere. That's fine. If you have one of those, I don't mean any offense. But it's more than that. It's more than that. And I hope that as we go through, I can make some of those connections and point some of those things out so that the Psalms become precious to you. You should give yourself to know this book as much as you would any other book in the Bible. This is not just a light thing that we do in the summer. And then in the fall, we'll get back to the real preaching. That's not the case. This is for your good. This is for your heart and for mine as well. Now, with these things in mind, I want to give you a couple of other things the Psalms give us. Two things that they give us. First, they give us a worldview. The Psalms give us a worldview. Okay, what do we mean when we say worldview? I think we all probably have a little bit of an idea about what I mean when I say that, but I want to tell you it includes five different things. Okay, a worldview includes, the fancy word would be meta-narrative, a story, a description of how things came to be and why they are the way they are. The Psalms give us that. And then out of that story, out of that meta-narrative comes doctrine, the truths that are derived from the story. Out of this, we also get ethics. What the meta narrative, what the story promotes or discourages as far as how we act, how we relate to one another, how we relate to God, that all flows from this. There is 
symbols, there's imagery, there's typology that helps us interpret the story and make connections and go, oh, it's not just David, we're talking about Jesus here. Okay, there's that that's included in this worldview. And then there is liturgy, which is worship. The worship that the worldview and that the story promotes. My point is that the Psalms give us this worldview, but that they do it in connection to the rest of the Bible. This is not some kind of isolated thing. This is in connection specifically to the rest of the Old Testament so that when the Psalms show us or teach us something about God, we can know that it's going to perfectly align with what the rest of the Bible tells us about God. Or when it teaches us something about how we're to conduct ourselves or how we're to worship or how we're to approach God, we can know that that's going to exactly line up with the law of God that was given to Moses, for example. You see what I'm saying? These are all connected. So the worldview that the Psalms articulate and promote is in connection to the rest of the Bible. Now, second thing the Psalms give us is permission and expression. The Psalms give us permission and expression. If you're anything like me, you cannot read the Psalms and at times not be shocked at the language that these guys are using in addressing God. Do you ever think that? Who do you think you are to get in God's face and say, why aren't you doing something? Don't you see what's happening here? Help me, save me, rescue me, vindicate me, hear me when I'm talking. And we go, oh my goodness. These, don't they know who they are? And I gotta tell you, it's not about who these men, who these writers think they are. It is about who God is. The Psalms give us permission as the children of God to approach Him in whatever circumstance you are in, whatever situation, no matter the condition of your heart as God's child, you can go to Him and say, I don't understand this. What are you doing? That is not disrespect to God. You ever do that with your dad? You ever go to him and say, I don't get this. Why are you doing this? You can do that with your heavenly father. You can approach him. He hears, he sees, he knows. And the Psalms give us permission to do this. They also give us expression. So many times we find ourselves, whether because of our own sin, because of the sin of others, because of circumstances, whatever it may be, we find ourselves in positions where we just don't know what to do. You don't know what to say. You don't even know how to think about, like, I never expected to be here. The book of Psalms give us a way to express those feelings, those frustrations. As we read through, we see that God does not only want us to approach when things are good, but he gives us ways to express. And I think one of the things that's so valuable about the Psalms, valuable, is that we see that not only the content is for our good, what, what it actually says objectively, but the way in which it is said is for our good. The Psalms give us permission to express things to God and they give us the expression, the actual, here's how you can do this. And I think this is really valuable for us. So with these things in mind, I invite you to open your Bibles, about the middle of your Bible, to Psalm chapter 12. This is our text for this morning. So open your Bible, Psalm chapter 12, and follow along as I read. 
to the choir master, according to the Shimonith, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who has master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver, refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Would you pray with me? Lord, for all of your goodness and faithfulness, we give you thanks this morning. And I thank you, Father, that you have given us in your wisdom and in your grace the book of Psalms. These poems and these prayers that give expression to the way we are feeling, that give words to the times when we just don't have words. And I pray, Father, that over the next months now, as we go through these psalms, that you would speak to us through them, that you would open our understanding, that we would learn how to relate to you and to one another, and that in your grace you would shepherd us as the good shepherd. Thank you for this psalm. And now, Lord, as we open it and we try to understand what you are saying to us through it, I pray that you would come and be our teacher. And would Jesus Christ be glorified in our time together, I pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, what I want to do now over the next months is at the outset to give you the, the thesis statement. You guys know what a thesis statement is? It's kind of the summary of what this psalm means. So for this morning, the summary that I have come up with is this. God's words are true and pure and he himself will enforce them. God's words are true and pure, and he himself will enforce them. Let's work through now, starting in verse 1, where we see the request of David, the request of the psalmist, save, O Lord. This cry from David for salvation comes as a direct result of the situation that has arisen around him, and we see this in the second part of the first verse. The wicked are on the rise. Evil seems to be ramping up and overtaking so that it appears that there is not even any righteous left. This is a situation that David finds himself in. Now, you and I both know the outcome of that kind of situation. If the righteous are gone and the wicked are exalted, we can probably guess what the end of that will be. Right? We can, we can trace that out. We can say, okay, we, we know the character of this. We know the character of this. Where is this headed? That's what David is doing. He's saying, there's no one around <laughs> that appears to be upholding the law of God, that appears to love God. It's just wickedness, lying. This is the same thing that's been happening in our context over the past 50 years and longer. Call it 
ethics or morality or decency, but this has been in decline for decades. Right? I mean, that's, that's what we experience all around us. Truth, objective truth, is becoming less and less popular. Standards of behavior are reduced to basically whatever you think. Sexuality is up to the individual self. Do whatever you want with whoever you want. And a result of that has been that human life has been reduced to whatever science believes it is and whenever science believes it is. It's a sad situation that we find ourselves in. But I want to remind you that when we read this psalm, we should be reminded that as bad as things are around us, and it is bad, nothing's new. Things have always been terrible because sin has always been in the world. We know from reading the rest of the scriptures that death came into the world through sin. Everything around us has been subjected to futility. So yeah, is it bad right now? Are we in a, in a pretty difficult spot? You bet. But it is not unique to us. This is not the first time things have happened this way. And the Psalms are here to remind us of that and now give us some tools to deal with this together. Look now at verses 2 and 4. This is a situation. Actually, let's start just a little bit earlier in the second half of verse 1. This is a situation David finds himself in. The godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished. Everyone lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off these flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? These wicked men who are making these boasts, who are asserting these things to one another and to God are the same wicked men from Psalm 1 and 2. Okay, Part of the wisdom of Ezra and Nehemiah structuring the Psalms the way they did is that the first two Psalms, Psalm 1 and 2, give us pretty much a system or a template to read the rest of the Psalms. So you remember from Psalm 1, it is a tale of a path, the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. And then Psalm 2, we see the wicked making their boast against God, saying, we're not going to subject ourselves to this. We are our own person. And then as we move through the Psalms, we see this dichotomy between the righteous and the wicked. We see the tension between the two. So as we move on and we see, we can look back and say, okay, this is who we're talking about. We can get a little bit of context for what's going on. Now notice the characteristics. What are these people doing? They lie to the people that they should be watching out for, their neighbors. They flatter with their speech, which is a result of a double heart. That is, a heart that seems to be inclined one way and might externally be one way, but really, in reality, there is another motive. There is another thing. It's the idea of duplicity. We know that word, right? Seeming to be one way, but in reality, it is another. We might use the phrase double-minded, as James does in James chapter 1. The, the Hebrew language is, is very interesting, and there's lots of words that are, it's very literal, right? And so there's lots of things. Uh, in verse 2 and 3, uh, the Hebrew says that men have lips of smooth things, slippery lips. You ever met anyone with slippery lips? Quick to talk, quick to puff themselves up, quick to make you feel like something you're not, that kind of thing. 
This is flattery. That's how we translate it in English. It's flattery. They seem to build up, but these words are empty, hollow, and worthless. The psalmist says their tongues make great boasts. What kind of boasts do you think are being made by these people? We don't have to guess. We can just look back at what we've previously seen. These wicked men, you remember from Psalm 2, set themselves against the Lord. And they say, we're not going to take on this. We're not going to subject ourselves to anyone else's authority. We are totally autonomous. And they boast in their own ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want. We will succeed because of our words. Have you heard the way we talk? We can talk our way out of anything. That's the kind of thing that's going on here. They have no fear. They have no reservation. There's no decency. It's just lies and deception. David observes this. He hears this kind of language. He observes this kind of behavior among the people, and he's discouraged. He's disheartened. Aren't we the same way? Don't you see what's going on around you? And just kind of like, ugh. But we're not stuck and we're not hopeless. David knows, even though he's discouraged, he knows that the only solution, this applies to us, pay attention, the only solution to the wickedness of men is the righteousness of God. The only thing to combat everything that he's listing out here is the righteousness, the holiness, the justice of God. And that is to what he appeals when he cries, Save, O God. David knows the justice of God. He knows that God will only ever do what is right. Do you know that? Do you know that God never does the wrong thing, ever? He only does what is right, not what is easy, mind you, but he only does what is right. So David cries out to God in verse 1 because of what he sees in verses 2 through 4. Now in verse 5, we see the answer of the Lord. Look at Psalm 12, 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. So the answer to the question that is posed in verse 4, you see that there? Who's, who's master over us? Who's going to tell us what to do? The answer is, I will arise, says the Lord. Yahweh is master over these wicked men. And the reason that God will act, I think this is really important, this is not God being flighty or uh, totally reactionary. The reason that God comes to the aid, who exercises his justice, is because that is his very nature. To be a God who is just and righteous, who will not tolerate sin forever. So the thing that stirs God into action is not just the request. He's not just appeasing. He's not saying, oh, I don't want you to be in trouble. I'm going to do something. It is a very reflection of his character. That God is just and God is righteous. And he acts to uphold his sovereign reign in the universe. He just doesn't always do it in the time frame that we might like, does he? His ways are not our ways. Verse 5 says, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Who is him? Well, like I said, in the context, this 
The whole structure, at least of this first part of the Psalms, is the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. So the one who will be placed in this safety is the one from Psalm chapter 1. The righteous man who meditates on the law of the Lord, who does not turn aside to engage with the wicked, who takes delight in the Lord and the one who is now poor and plundered and in need. This is the one whom the Lord will save. The wicked may seem to have the upper hand. It, it might seem for a time, and this is where as we move through, especially in the, in the teens here of the Psalms, we're going to see these questions. Why? Why are you letting this happen? Why not just cut it right now and be done with it? But we don't understand all the ways that God works, but we know that he's good. We know that he's just, that he hears and will respond. Now I want to give just a brief point of application You've probably heard me say this, I'm going to say it again, that everything we see physically in the Bible by way of uh, parable, illustration, uh, everything physical is meant to be a spiritual interpreter. And what I mean by that is that, for instance, in this psalm, when it says God will rescue the poor, the needy, the plundered, it's not just like a socioeconomic thing like, Ooh, that guy missed his paycheck. I better rescue him because that's not what's going on, okay? The physical things are meant to help us understand spiritual reality. When Jesus speaks in parables, he's not overly concerned with wheat and dill and thyme and cumin and everything else. He is concerned with the heart, with the spiritual things, right? So when we see this, we should read this and have tremendous hope (laughs) that those of us who are or who were spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ can be rescued by God. Because what does the New Testament tell us? That God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. That's 1 Peter. In other places, Paul talks about the riches of kindness in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is not some kind of physical thing. And I just want to remind you that everything physical in the Bible is meant to help us understand a spiritual reality. All those who are spiritually poor, and that's everyone, can find everything we need in Christ. Isn't that good? Isn't that a great reminder? So don't read this and go, I don't, I don't necessarily associate, I don't, I don't have any context for this. Yes, you do. Because of our sin, we're all spiritually bankrupt. We need something credited to us. And that happens through the sacrifice of Christ. Now, let's keep moving. Verses 6 and 7, I want you to see this as a contrast to what we saw in verses 2 and 4. In verses 2 through 4, we saw the boastful, proud, arrogant speech of these wicked men. And here in verses 6 and 7, we see by contrast what the words of the Lord are. Read this along with me. Psalm 12, 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. The words of men are dirty, stained, corrupted, worthless, Their mouths are an open grave, their tongues spread deceit, folly, 
confusion, falsehood, all these things characterize the speech of the men who do not love or know God. This is not the case with God. His words, the psalmist says, are pure. And not just pure as in, you know, water is pure enough to drink or a newborn lamb is pure, something like that. The words of the Lord are pure like silver, a precious metal that has been refined by the most intense refinement. When he says the furnace is on the ground, that's just it goes down through the stages of refinement and comes out at the bottom level. Okay, that's what that means. It has been through the total purification process. You also may know that the number seven carries significance in Israel. It is the number of perfection. So then, we can see that the words of the Lord are not only pure, but they are perfect, having been, in a sense, refined seven times. There's another spot in the Old Testament, in the book of Kings, where the number seven has significance as far as purification. You can go there, Second uh, Kings 5, and read the story of Naaman. Anyone remember Naaman? He was a Syrian general who had leprosy. And in order to be cured through Elisha the prophet, God says, tell him to go dip himself seven times in the water and he'll be cleansed. And he does. Okay? So again, this is just imagery to help us understand the purity and the perfection of the word of God. Now the point David is making in using this purification language is not that the word of God formerly was devoid or dirty or needed to be cleaned up and so it was refined. What he is doing is reaching for language to help us understand how absolutely perfect and pure and he thinks and he's racking his brain and what can I tell these people that will help them understand the perfection and the purity of the word and he thinks about this refining process where you put in this raw chunk of metal and out comes something precious and beautiful. So this is not fixing something in the word of God. It is simply language to help us understand the purity and the perfection of the word of the Lord. The word of God is not corrupted like the words of men. It is not false like the words of men. It is not misleading like the words of men. The word of the Lord is pure. But not just pure, it is backed up and guaranteed by the very action of God. I can say something. You can say something. None of us have the absolute and total ability to back up everything we say. Something could happen, situation changes, whatever. You know what I'm saying? It's not the case with God. Every word of God is true and will hold because it is God who enforces his word. And he has the ability to do so. Look down at verse 7. You, O Lord, will keep them. Them is referring back to the words of the Lord. God will keep his words. He keeps all of them. Now, why do you think David includes this? Why didn't David just say, uh, well, the words of the Lord are good and pure? And we would have said, yes and amen. Why does he include this part about God keeping or upholding his words? He had to remind himself and us by extension that the word of God never fails because it kind of looked like it had, (laughs) right? I mean, look at the situation. David says, 
I look around, pretty much everyone around me is either lying, deceiving, flattering, there's wickedness, there's all kinds of rottenness going on around us. What is up? But he puts this part in here to remind himself and to remind us of the surety of the word of God, to build our faith because it looked like the word of God has failed. But I want to remind you, God never breaks a promise. He never breaks a promise. Every word in this book is not only true, but will be true a million years from now. You can't do that. I can't do that. But God can. This is where I got the thesis statement for this morning. God's words are true and pure, and He Himself will enforce them. But not only will he take care of his word, he will take care of his people. He'll keep his people till the end. Look at the end of verse 7. You will guard us from this generation forever. This generation refers to the wickedness, the, the corruption that is going on around David and around us. The point of what David writes here is that God is able to keep his words. He is. They are pure, they are true, and God will enforce them. This is especially important to know now as we come to the last verse. Look at what David says in verse 8. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of men. You see what's going on here? You get the sense of being closed in around when he says there's prowling and it's on every side and this kind of language. That should make us realize, okay, this isn't just an isolated thing. This is not a one-off. This is pressure coming from every side. It's like hunting, prowling is hunting language. Like they're going out looking for things to get into trouble with. It's pretty bleak. Not a very happy outlook. But we must remember what verse 7 tells us, that God will keep his words. He'll rescue. He'll preserve. He'll save. Because he's a God who upholds his word upholds his justice, upholds his attributes, and we can trust in that. Yep, it might seem like evil is on the rise. It might seem like for a time, there's no one who will stand up for truth and goodness, justice and righteousness, but no, God has not abandoned his people and he will never go back on his word. This is the thing about God that sets him apart, one of many. He will arise. He will act. He hears us. When we pray, and I want you to believe that. I want you to believe that because if you don't, you are going to spin your wheels for the rest of your life wondering what in the world is going on. But you don't have to. This is such an applicable psalm, I think, and as we close, I just want to draw a couple comparisons between David's time and our time. And unless you are completely disconnected... (laughs) You know, when we look around us, that things are changing, and they are changing very fast. There are organizations, institutions that used to be solid and conservative, or whatever word you want to put on it, and now are making decisions that cause us to go, wait a minute, should we associate with that? Are we, what are we doing here? What's going on? Right? As I mentioned before, 
anything remotely looking like morality or standards, that's out the window. There is legislation being passed. And hear me, this is not just way down in Washington where they're making things that don't affect us. This is school board. This is city council. This is things being passed to promote and encourage things the Bible tells us are sin. It's real. And you know it's real. Because we interact with this as we look at the world around us. By all appearance, it looks like the same thing is happening in David's time, that the righteous are disappearing and the wicked are being exalted. So what is a Christian to do? I'm not here to advocate for some kind of political involvement, some kind of whatever. If that's where God has you, praise God, serve there faithfully. But what would you tell? If, you, if we were reversed, what would you tell the church right now? In light of what we saw, in light of what we know, what, how could I encourage you? It's the same message. <laughs> if you've been here any other Sunday, you've heard this. Trust in the word of God. Every answer we need, brothers and sisters, is in his scriptures. And we can have confidence that every word in this book is true. So when you don't know what to do, look, open this book, read, talk to godly friends around you. Remember the words of God. He's not abandoned us. He's not forsaken us. His timing may not be what you want, but I promise you, he keeps his promises. Always. And I want you to remember the words of Edward Mote. There's probably only one person who knows what I'm about to say. <laughs> You'll know it in a second. Listen to this. His oath, his covenant, his blood. Support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Can you finish it? On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You have a foundation. The words of God are true and pure, and He Himself will enforce them. Isn't that great news? That's good news. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this good reminder from the Psalms. And we know that things will get worse and worse. The Bible is just so clear that. Things are not going to be rosy. Things are not going to be pleasant at times. But thank you that you do not abandon us. That you do not leave us to our own resources. We have nothing. We're just saying this. Nothing in our hands we bring. But simply to your cross we cling, Jesus. So God, I ask that as each one of us have opportunities now in the coming week to interact with people who hate you, people who despise your law, people who do not want to know you, Lord, would we be a beacon of light? Would we rely upon you and not be swayed by the opinions of the world? Keep us grounded in the truth of the Bible. We need your help so badly with this. It is so tempting to cave on our biblical convictions, but God, keep us firm, fixed on your word, with our eyes fixed on you. Help us to set our minds on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Strengthen us for this task. We can't do this on our own. We need you, we need your spirit, and we need each other. So please, hear our prayer and answer us for your own glory, for your own reputation, not for ours. 
We give you thanks, Lord, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.